Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be speaking with Professor Deborah Stone, a political scientist and policy analyst, about her new book, Counting, How We Use Numbers to Decide What Matters. She is a professor emerita at Brandeis University. She has also held professorships at MIT and Duke University, as well as a 10-year honorary professorship at Aarhus University in Denmark. In 2017, Professor Stone received the American Political Science Association's James Madison Award, a Lifetime Achievement Award for Distinguished Contribution to the Field. Professor Stone has authored numerous books, but she is best known for her book, Policy Paradox, The Art of Political Decision-Making, which has won many prizes and has been translated into six languages. Today, she talks to us about how policymaking is shaped by the worship of numbers and why we should be skeptical of what she calls quantitative imperialism. She also explains why categorizing is the most powerful tool we have for understanding the world, not counting. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Professor Stone now. Professor Deborah Stone, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Now, talk to us a bit about your career. What made you interested in social science in the first place? Well, when I started out, I really grooved on math and science and not social science. They appealed to me because they had right answers. In literature, teachers would ask you, what's your opinion about this? And in math, there was a right answer. In biology, which I really loved, the first thing we did was look through a microscope. And I was just enchanted that there was pattern in the world. There was order. And when you're 13, 14 years old, you are searching for the meaning of life and, and what's the order in the world. And so I thought the answers were to be found in science and math. Then when I got to college, my friends told me that the best professor they had was the teacher who taught introduction to government. And, uh, and it was a really exciting course. So I took it. I had no interest in politics, but I took it. And it turned out the whole first semester was political theory. We started with Plato and we marched on up through all the political theorists. And I thought, this is wonderful. This is a subject that's about how to make justice in the world. What kind of government? How do you design government to promote justice and well-being? And that seemed like the most noble aspiration you can imagine. And so I was really taken with that. And then I went on to graduate school. And just as I was coming out of grad school, there was the, this new, uh, new field and a whole set of new schools and programs in public policy. And that was the bingo for me because it was the study of what government does to make life better for people, to solve problems and uh, improve people's well-being. So it was... It combined the philosophical quest for justice and goodness with practical, how do we accomplish it? Now, tell us a bit about your book, Counting, How We Use Numbers to Decide What Matters. 
What did you hope to achieve by writing this book and who was it aimed at? Uh, it's a bit grandiose, but basically I wanted to launch a counter-revolution against uh, the, the quantitative imperialism. Uh, I think there's so much um, worship of numbers, uh, especially in public policy and policy analysis, um, in government. Government calls for evidence-based uh, uh, policymaking, by which they mean numbers. Um, journalists call for facts, by which they mean numbers. And universities, we you know, we teach uh, in all the places where I've taught. We pretty much tell students now, not me, but most professors tell students, if you don't do statistics, you won't get a job and you won't, uh, you're not doing real science. So a lot of um, mathematicians and economists, even the ones who are very critical of our use of numbers in a good way, I think, um, claim that numbers are the most powerful instrument we have to understand reality or understand the world and that they're objective and that those, those really can tell us the facts, the real patterns in the world. I think that's putting way too much faith in numbers. I don't think that you can get much understanding of human character by counting things. I don't think you can get much understanding of human relationships by counting. Sure, we have algorithms that can fix people up on blind dates and a lot of them work out into very happy marriages, but algorithms can't fix marital problems <laughs> after a while. And I think most important numbers can't help us uh, solve or resolve ethical dilemmas and know what's the right thing to do. But basically, what I'm trying to do is, is um, inculcate some skepticism about these, um, this number worship. The book is for, um, for everybody. It's for data professionals in the sense that um, I hope to encourage uh, a little bit more skepticism about, uh, about all these claims. And I, I think that um, you'll be a better data journalist and a better data scientist if you know where your data come from, meaning you, the raw numbers, how, how things get counted. And it's really for everyone interested in public affairs, everyone who enjoys reading the news and wants to understand it or wants to make sense of health information or other information about uh, how we live our lives. And um, I, I think I want no one to be intimidated by fancy statistics. Now, in the 1960s, um, I know the field of political science began working a lot with quantitative data. That was where a lot of the funding was for researchers and academics. Did that sway you in any way um, to be interested in, in looking at the dynamics of counting and, and writing this book? It sure did. Uh, it, it swayed me in a kind of negative way. But I had my first run-in with what I call quantitative imperialism when I took my undergraduate introduction to economics. And I remember the professor, the first semester was microeconomics, and the professor put up a whole bunch of supply and demand curves on the blackboard and talked to us about how people decide what to buy or how much to buy according to the price. And that they 
everybody works to maximize their self-interest and get the most for the least. And I raised my hand and I said, I don't think that's the only thing people think about when they, I don't think price is the only thing. And I, uh, so I think that's really an oversimplification. And the professor said, yes, I agree with you that it's an oversimplification, but if we strip things down and we make this simplification, it can lead to some very powerful predictions. And something really rubbed me the wrong way about the idea that you could ignore things that are really important to people and then say that you're making powerful predictions. And I think that that little inkling of mine was, was really borne out as the, I don't know, as the decades progressed and we went to what people are now calling market fundamentalism, that we've organized entire economies and political economies on the idea that people pursue their self-interest and maximize either profit or gain to them. Uh, and it's led to a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of trouble. In grad school, fortunately, I had two professors who became my mentors who really worked with words and worked with ideas. And so that really appealed to me. But I was required to take one methods course, one statistics course, and then one course in methods. And the methods course was taught by a professor who was keen on this new vogue called behaviorism. The idea behind it was that you could um, find simple acts of behavior that people do and count them. And out of the, those counts, you could learn something about how people think and what they want. And the classic example, when it was very popular at the time and still is, was count how people vote. And that will tell you what they want from government. And again, I had this same feeling and I debated and debated with the professor that I thought there was so much more that people want and how people understand the world than can be captured by the measurable actions that they take, such as, uh, such as voting. So basically, I've had this constant tension in my in my academic career and, and just my thinking about the world, this constant tension between two ways of understanding and engaging with the world, words and numbers. Now, of course you've written other books prior to this, but I'm just curious, what is your creative process, you know, when you were coming up with the different chapters and the different examples? I start with a creepy feeling when I when I've read something or heard something, and I get a creepy feeling like what my economics professor said to me. Uh, I then try to look into myself. Why do Why does that give me a creepy feeling? And I I read and I I listen to things people say. I pursue it. So I, for example, with this book, I was trying to explain to my students and my colleagues why I don't think numbers are objective. And I came up with the idea that, of course, when you, um, numbers, the numbers you get depend on what you decide to count in the first place. That's really, really obvious. But an example from university life is that we evaluate professors by how many articles they publish not by how many hours they spend helping their colleagues get their articles published. 
And collegiality is a really important part of our professional lives, but we don't measure that. Our, our university administrators don't measure that. So I come, try to come up with examples of where I show how the creepy feeling is borne out. The second thing is I think um, I often feel a puzzle. I don't understand how something works the way it does, why something happens. And my way of approaching that is I, I first just try to imagine a story that would explain it. And that in science, that's called a hypothesis. You come up with a, a, you know, an idea about how things are related or how things work, what causes what. That's too fancy for what I do. Um, I play with ideas. I don't perform rigorous scientific experiments. I, I make up a story and then I test my stories by roaming around in the world to see if I can find other examples of where that story works or might explain something. And I look um, not so much to, um, to academic research, but to conversations I have with people, to memoirs, to fiction, to advertisements, anything that is going on in the world that I just think, aha, that's a good example of something. So um, with this book, for example, I have a chapter on how numbers get their meaning. And I thought numbers don't have a universal meaning. If you just say to somebody seven, is that a lot or a little? <laughs> you know, um, we don't know. So one example I found at the time I was writing that chapter, there was this so-called caravan of Central American refugees coming towards the American border in Texas. And um, news reports in one month kept changing the numbers from anywhere from 1,400 to 7,000 people were supposedly in this caravan. And I... Is that a lot or a little? Trump was making it into a crisis and a horror. Uh, but I noticed that the news sometimes described these people as trudging, exhausted, hungry, weary, carrying their children, frightened, and sometimes described them as surging, stampeding, uh, about to invade the U.S., and I, that was a great example of how simple adjectives and adverbs package numbers to make them feel bigger or smaller and more or less threatening. And I think that's really an important point to understand about numbers. They are just numbers until we humans make meaning from them. Your book also talks about early child development and how we learn to count and you know, how that impacts us throughout our lives and how numbers can be used as a metaphor. And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about that and why did you think that was important to include in the book? Thank you. That's, it's really the key to, to my book. I want people to understand the mental process behind counting. And I'm not talking about PhD brains here. I'm talking about preschool because we all learn to count before, usually before we go to kindergarten, but sometimes um, in kindergarten, I often ask people to if they can remember learning to count. And it's really interesting. I haven't found anyone who remembers learning how to count. Because some people remember learning how to read, but no one remembers learning how to count or learning how to talk. It's something our parents teach us and the adults around us teach us, but we just absorb it somehow. So I read a little bit of early child development literature, but I didn't find what I was looking for. I went to children's counting books. 
and worksheets for preschoolers on, on counting. And what I realized from those is that we teach children to count by first teaching them the number words in their language and how to say them in the proper sequence. And then we line up objects in front of them and we um, ask them to point to the objects and say the number words in the, in the right order. And if you've ever taught a child to count, you might have encountered one uh, who, where at the beginning, the number words are just a poem to them and they get it wrong. So they'll go one, two, three, six. <laughs> and uh, they really don't associate the words with quantity. The crucial thing is that the adult has already sorted out what it is they want the child to count. You can't say to a kid, put them in a room and say, now count. What are they supposed to count? They can't count everything in the room. Somebody has to put things in a group and say, count the things in this group. And that's what adults do at the beginning. Uh, they, they do that sorting. And a kid doesn't have to decide what counts as the thing to be counted because the adults have already done it for them. In the book, I, I use a, a picture from one of the Sesame Street counting books. It's a picture of the cookie monster counting, uh, has six cookies. And the cookies are all the same shape and size, but they have very different frosting. Some have chocolate squiggles and pink dots and uh, white a whole smush of frosting. And uh, so they're different. Uh, but the kid is supposed to learn that the cookies are all the same for the purposes of counting and for the purposes of language. They're all called counting. They're all called cookies. And they all count as cookies. This is what I mean by um, metaphor. Counting is really making metaphors. So is language. Language works by making metaphor. We group things together that are not exactly the same, but we call them all by the same name. So books aren't exactly the same, but they we call them all books. And then there's the question of, is an ebook really a book? <laughs> Do you count it as a book? And so on. So we make metaphors by, by simplifying, by seeing a likeness between things that are very different but they share one characteristic, one likeness. And we focus on that, and then we say, this is a that. Um, this is a book, uh, because it has covers and pages or whatever. This is a cookie, even though uh, all the cookies have different frosting. When kids learn to count, and when they learn to talk, they're learning how adults categorize things. They're learning what fits under the word cookie and what fits, um, what, what is to be counted, therefore, as a cookie. We can't talk or think about things without categorizing. Like I said, if you just say, what's in this room? It's just too big a question, or count the things in this room. It's just too big a question. So I would argue that categorizing is the most powerful tool we have for understanding the world. Not, not counting, but the categorizing that comes before counting. And categorizing is a form of power. Uh, to say that this is a that is a really strong assertion. The 
most powerful example I think of, of, of that is the United States Census. Early on in the American Constitution, we um, debated, the Founding Fathers debated how to count people, who counts as a person for the purpose of the census. And they decided that slaves, they debated whether slaves counted as people. Uh, in the South, they were considered property among slaveholders. Uh, and they came up with this three-fifths compromise where slaves would count as three-fifths of a person. That categorization is perhaps the most powerful, devastatingly powerful categorization in counting that was ever made. Right. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, at the moment we're living through this pandemic, um, you know, data has become very important since COVID-19. Um, I mean, even before that it was important, but it really is something that is, people see and it's affecting their lives. It's determining local restrictions, travel, even life and death in some ways. So I'm just curious, like, where were you when you were writing this book? Were you in the middle of a draft when the pandemic hit or did you already have it written? The final set of page proofs came back to me the first week in March. And a few days later, I started in on them. The, uh, we already knew about the pandemic, but that was when the lockdown um, happened just a few days later in the United States. Uh, and already the news reports were all full of numbers. That was how we were talking about, about COVID. Uh, so I uh, first had this panic attack that the book, the book was scheduled to be published in late September or early October. And I thought this book is dead in the water if it doesn't mention COVID. Uh, when that's going to be the set of numbers that's most in people's minds. So I asked the publisher if I could have some more time and write an epilogue about COVID. And writing the epilogue was my way of taming the terror. It gave me a chance to fit this very frightening and confusing jumble into uh, an intellectual framework. So it was another way that I think writing is, um, it's just a very helpful process for making sense of the world. The general public, I think, really learned a lot about counting and some of the points uh, of my book from the way numbers were discussed. I, I think most of all, I really thank Donald Trump for uh, for his statement, um, if we didn't have so many tests, we wouldn't have so many cases. It, 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 it was, on the one hand, a really stupid thing to say. On the other hand, that is exactly, I think, the central insight of my book. You, the, a number is, depends on what you decide to count and how much you decide. When you decide to stop counting, that's the number you'll get. So, uh, uh, and I think um, Trump made it so obvious to people in a way I probably never, you know, in my wildest dreams couldn't succeed at that. And then I think people, at least most of my acquaintances, would, would talk very quickly, very soon about how you couldn't really compare numbers of cases in different towns or different neighborhoods, or different states, because um, those, those comparisons were meaningless because they depended on how much testing each jurisdiction did. 
So people, again, they, they saw it play out in a, and understood it in a policy way. The same thing with the number of COVID deaths. It depended on how agencies classified deaths on death certificates and how doctors classified deaths on death certificates, uh, how many deaths there seemed to be. In the book, you talk about how numbers have the aura of power, and you cite how the world is full of scoring systems to make important decisions about um, things that affect people's lives, like insurance rates, bank loan approvals, pay rises, whether or not you get a bonus. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about those biases and what people should be mindful of when they're looking at those indicators. That's a great question. I'm a political scientist, so I see power everywhere. <laughs> and, and I think that's maybe how I look at numbers a little bit differently from economists and mathematicians, because I'm looking for how numbers exert power. Um, one way they exert power, Hannah Fry says um, numbers are a source of comfort. And I think in the COVID pandemic, that, that has been true. They offer an illusion of, of certainty. It is an illusion, but, but it's still, they offer us hope of control and, and certainty. Another way numbers exert power is that they include and they exclude people. So all these scoring systems for job hiring, for uh, giving insurance, for giving bank loans, um, giving uh, pay raises and promotions, all of those boost some people up and leave some people out. Another thing numbers do, I think they hide values and biases. They have this air of precision and objectivity, but they don't make their values, the underlying values in the categorizing explicit. So the example I gave before, how we evaluate our universities, evaluate teachers by counting countable objects, publications, rather than counting helpfulness to students or helpfulness to your colleagues. Those are much more difficult to measure, but they bias the evaluation towards a certain kind of behavior and away from another kind of behavior. So that's a, a, another form of power. What should people look out for uh, when you're using these numbers? Well, it depends on which side of the power equation you're on. Uh, if you're a victim of a scoring system and you feel that you've been disadvantaged by it, um, you don't have much clout. Most institutions and organizations that use these kind of scoring systems keep them secret. They don't want to reveal how they make their decisions because they don't want to be challenged. That's their source of power uh, to do whatever they want. And that is where I think data journalists can come and play an important role and other investigators um, and lawyers bringing class action suits to force agencies or institutions to reveal their counting methods and, uh, and their scoring methods, uh, and then um, sometimes show that those are uh, biased or prejudiced uh, or unfair in, uh, in some other way. If you're on the other side of the, of the power relationship, you're an employer, an insurer, a banker, um, you, not, um, you may not care so much about the biases. In fact, you will stand firm that your biases are necessary and that ultimately they serve the public interest. 
and you want to use numbers to insulate you from criticism and from responsibility, from taking responsibility for the values and the biases that you are using to make your decisions. Now, you talk about the U.S. Census in your book, and I'm mindful of the fact that a new census is coming out for the United States soon, and that's going to be something that journalists do really troll through. Um, And, you know, in your book, you talk about the different categories of race that are in the census. And just now you said categorizing as a form of power, and it truly is. So I'm, I'm just curious, from your perspective as a political science, if you could redesign the U.S. Census, categorically speaking, when it comes to race, what would you do? How would you do it differently? This is a giant conundrum, and I don't have a good answer for this. I've thought about it a lot. I've read everything I could find about the census. But here's my dilemma. Race is the quintessential thing that can't be counted. It's an idea that some people have about other people. It's a social construct. It's not a thing. It's not like a rock or a tree, if you could even agree what you know counts as a rock and a tree. Um, and there's a simple reason why we can't count race, people's race. That is sex. Even if you assign race to two people, what do you do when those two people have kids? What do you do? How do you count their kid? In the United States, we have this a sickening tradition of the one drop rule that was applied to people who at the time were called Negroes. If they had one drop of Negro blood, they were would be classified as Negro and therefore banned from all things that whites could do. But now we have um, so many different people, people are mixtures of backgrounds themselves and then they produce kids. And uh, one of the, um, striking things I found out in researching this book is that um, all those predictions that are made about how um, in the year 2042, I think it is, the United States will no longer have a white majority. It will be minority majority. And all those predictions are based on a little categorizing decision that the Census Bureau does when it makes projections. It takes the children of people who are of mixed race marriages, uh, in quotes, um, and counts them as the same race as the non-white parent. So the more racial integration we have, and what could be the best you know, a better sign of social harmony and and racial integration than intermarriage. Um, But the more you have, the more it increases statistically who counts as a minority and uh, and therefore sends out this frightening message to whites. This is a thing that is driving white supremacists crazy. Uh, So... Um, that is the real danger of counting race. I think it can't be done. There's no correct way to do it, um, given human reproduction. So I am not sure that, you know, if there's no correct way to do it, then what? Here's the other side of my dilemma. Uh, in the United States, we have counted race since the beginning, and we have made laws and policies and continue to do that on the basis of race and the, and the effects of race-based policymaking and decision-making um, 
are playing out um, and will play out forever, really, into the future. That's why we have so much wealth inequality between the races in the United States, because Blacks weren't allowed to own homes and um, uh, they weren't given mortgages. So, and I think that the dilemma is how can you begin to remedy these inequities unless you take account of race? And I'm just curious, how do you walk the fine line of handling missing data or using data sets that may have guesstimates from statistics offices or even the World Bank, as you mentioned in your book? You know, a lot of assumptions are made from what you cited. What do journalists and policymakers need to be mindful of? Should there be more information explaining this? Organizations like the World Bank that are trying to gather lots of data from lots of places, they often have missing data. So they make estimates or they make guesses. Hopefully, these data gatherers like the World Bank make their estimating techniques very explicit. And the World Bank does, which is where I got my example. But journalists should always dig to find out how estimates are made. I mean, first of all, they should dig to find out whether there are estimates in there, whether what, what what happened to the missing data, and uh, what the what the data source used to um, to account for the missing data. Um, what's the process? Was it seat of the pants? Was it a random guess throwing darts? Was it um, using last year's numbers to just assume that they're going to be the same in this year or bump them up 10% assuming growth? Or did they take an average of the last five years or, uh, and so on? There are lots of, lots of ways to make an estimate. Once you find out how did the data source or the data gatherer make their estimate, then I think you should ask yourself, are the estimates, how closely are they tied to reality? And it can range from stab in the dark, which is, you know, we just threw in a random guess to, um, well, we based it on last year's numbers and things don't usually change that much from year to year in, say, agricultural production. Or um, there's one example I give in the book where a researcher I know was trying to figure out what were the major causes of fires? And she thought that she could use these reports that firemen file after the fire, saying what they thought, what they determined was the cause of the fire. And she went to talk to some fire people to find out. And the head fire officer told her, oh, they don't file those reports after. They file them on the way to the fire because it would waste too much time afterwards. <laughs> so, so they filed the incident report before they've even gotten to the scene. It's completely untethered to reality. Other question I think we can ask ourselves is, um, how far off from reality would an estimate have to be to wreak havoc, that, to change how a policymaker or a decision maker would act and make them act in a way that was really counterproductive? Uh, so that it's what statisticians refer to as sensitivity analysis. How sensitive is your decision to the error, or the range of error? And, um, uh, and that would be something if, a, if you, on an investigation, find out that, wow, um, this could make a big difference between yes and no or go and no go, uh, then you should really bring that out in your reporting. 
And finally, um, in the book, you explain how counting sharpens our minds if we count mindfully. But what about journalists who are taking data or data sets and numbers that have already been counted? What do you feel they need to be mindful of in their data storytelling? Don't take the numbers for granted. <laughs> uh, ask three questions about, about the numbers. What was counted and what was not counted? Who counted and why did they count? I think those are the, it's the same questions you'd ask as a journalist, right? So let me give a, a couple of examples for the what, what was counted. The UN decided 10 or 15 years ago that it wanted to start measuring gender violence in different countries around the world, violence against women. Uh, and they invited a lot of uh, women experts on this stuff to uh, umpteen committee meetings, and they came up with lists of uh, what would count as, as violence against women. And then they'd survey women um, and ask, has this or this or this or this happened to you? And the things that there was mostly Western, North American, um, and European women who um, were on these committees, and they came up with the usual um, hitting, kicking, rape, uh, murder, beating. There were one group of women from Bangladesh, and they said, well, we have other kinds of violence that we experience. Men throw acid in our face. They put needles under our fingernails. They drop us from high places. Um, they make us sleep out in, with the animals when we're menstruating. They berate us and beat us for not producing a boy child. And they wanted these things to be counted and, the, and they ended up not making it into the survey. So uh, all those forms of violence wouldn't show up in a count. So that's, that's the what question. Um, who did the counting? Often uh, uh, journalists and, and us normal consumers of, of, um, of data, we encountered data that was um, where experts did the counting. And an example, I, and I want to say in this book, don't be bamboozled by experts. Uh, there's a very sophisticated uh, project called Varieties of Democracy that uh, tries to measure how democratic all the countries in the world are. And they do this by asking uh, people who have expertise on each country to answer a whole bunch of survey questions about criteria for democracy. So one example would be, do women have equal access to justice, property, right to work and something else, I don't know, in this country? And the experts are asked to give an answer from one to five, I think it was zero to four. But, and then um, they, there's several experts for each country and all of this goes into a computer and they come up with a number ranking between one and a thousand for every country. I wanted to find out, well, what are these experts actually doing when they're counting? So I called someone I know, a colleague I know, who rates for this Varieties of Democracy project. And she told me, oh, well, we're given two weeks to do it. And um, my answers are very impressionistic. Um, I said, what do you do if you get a question like the one I just mentioned where you're asked to give an overall judgment about whether women have equal access to justice, working, 
and, and jobs and um, property ownership and whatever the fourth thing was. And she said, oh, it's very impressionistic. You can't really, you know, you can't really give a good answer to, to that question. So here's this really, and then she also talked about how she's squeezing in answering this. She's a serious social scientist and she, she likes to use this data. She would like to have this data to use in her teaching. But, and her own research, but she says, I'm, you know, squeezing this in before I, you know, prepare for class in the morning or something. And so um, don't hesitate. If you're a journalist, pick up the phone, call someone who you think is at the, at the bottom of the system doing the counting um, and just ask them how they do it. Just ask them to talk to you, tell them how, how they do it. And I think you can find out a lot about um how to be skeptical. Sometimes um, data are collected, say, by an organization like the World Bank, where there's a higher level organization that's collecting the data from lower organizations that keep passing their results up a chain. It's kind of like a bucket brigade. Uh, and again, go back down to the bottom of the chain and ask how um, people got their numbers. And I think one question I always ask myself is, did people at the bottom have incentives or reasons why they would want to maximize or minimize the number? Um, are they being rewarded for getting a high number or do they want to look good for getting a high number or a low number? And you know, finally, why? What was the purpose of counting? Why did, why did someone want to count? And here again, I think this ties back to the purpose of counting might very well sway the counters to include or exclude different things. Well, Professor Deborah Stone, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you. It was really fun to talk with you. Thank you for great questions. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.